This is Radio NL's Inside Politics for Kamloops Computer Center. For NL News Director Shane Woodford, here's Terry Lake. Well, good morning, uh, everybody. It's a great pleasure to be here filling in for Shane Woodford, who's taking a well-deserved break on uh, Inside Politics this morning. We have a lot to talk about. It's an interesting time, of course, an election that resulted in a minority B.C. Liberal government, an unprecedented alliance between the NDP and the Green Party, and yesterday a throne speech that deviated widely from the B.C. Liberal election platform, incorporating many ideas from the other two parties. Today, later, we will be talking with Hamish Telford, political scientist from University of Fraser Valley, as well as Dan Hines, the Green Party candidate from Kamloops North Thompson. But kicking us off to talk about the strange and wonderful world of B.C. politics, we have Vaughn Palmer, the columnist for the Vancouver Sun, Rob Shaw, the legislative reporter for the Sun, and Keith Baldry, legislative reporter for Global TV. Good morning, gentlemen. Good morning, Terry. How are you? Well, it's great. It's great to be on this side of the mic. I get to put you guys a bit on the hot seat uh, now. I'm let's, thinking let's that what's going on down here, I'm though. I'm thinking, Terry, that when you left politics, somebody said, "How low can you stoop?" And you said, "I'm going into the media." <laughs> <laughs> it, it's not uh, that far of a fall, believe me. <laughs> so, uh, yesterday, gentlemen, uh, the throne speech. Uh, obviously, let's talk uh, about the speaker selection first of all, Steve Thompson. Uh, from Kelowna, Minister of Forest uh, Lands and Natural Resource Operations, widely respected by members on, uh, uh, from all parties. Uh, what are your comments on the selection of Steve Thompson? Well, I, I think it's a great choice. Uh, n- nobody really had him in the pool uh, because we didn't really think a cabinet minister was going to go in uh, to the speaker's chair, but uh, he was the surprise uh, pick. He says he really always was interested in the job, and I think it helps that he's like a six foot six burly rugby player because right now down here, uh, given the atmosphere in that house, you need someone pretty pretty strong to keep order in that place. Former national yeah, rugby team the, the player. Premier the premier and the leader of the opposition both had good laugh lines. Uh, the premier warned Thompson to be careful not to hit the button on the ejector seat too soon. And Horgan <laughs> joked to the House that he looked forward to Thompson serving as speaker for days, uh, for weeks, for months, and even years. So both parties are still maneuvering around the choice of a speaker. And uh, what uh, what's the speculation on that? Uh, will uh, Mr. Thompson stay in the speaker chair for this parliament, or will he uh, resign uh, if the government falls? You, you know, Terry, we uh, asked him that question yesterday, and he said, oh, I don't want to speculate on uh, on what might happen. But I think we all understand that the agreement within the Liberals was uh, whoever takes this job now, uh, quits and resigns if and when the Liberal government falls, and that does not that person does not stick around and prop up uh, essentially the NDP, giving them an, an easier time. But the, the Mr. Minister Thompson wouldn't say it yesterday. But I, I did hear John Horgan this morning on the, on another radio station saying, "Look, I'm still trying to convince him to stay in the Speaker's chair." But that's a that's a pretty tall order. The whole reason that uh, the Liberals went this route is they could find a very loyal, very competent uh, soldier who could fill the chair for a while, but uh, not resist the urge to hang on in, the, in a very nice job uh, after the government falls. And I guess we'll see if, uh, if that temptation is there once, uh, once he's been in that position for a week, and it will be an interesting uh, week next week when the uh, throne speech is debated. Uh, so let's talk about the throne speech. It uh, deviated widely from the B.C. Liberal campaign platform. 
uh, incorporated a lot of ideas uh, from the other parties. Um, but is that necessarily a bad thing? The Premier says, well, we, uh, we learned from the election, we listened to people, and now we're incorporating those good ideas. Well, I think uh, I think they overdid it. You know, we knew they were going to incorporate some of the, some of the other parties' uh, more popular policies. But I, I thought, Terry, that you know, line after line, page after page, was one thing after another. They, I would have held something back, a few things back for an election campaign and announced it there. But they went all in on this speech, and I think they overcooked it a bit. Uh, and I think as a result of that, the skepticism out there to this uh, was probably a little higher than it needed to be. That uh, this wasn't so much as a, a ploy to win. In that confidence vote, I don't think. I mean, people say this is a, a desperate bid to hang on to power. I think they know that the game is up and they're not going to win the vote. And this is more about serving notice of what they're going to run on in the next campaign, which is probably going to be fairly soon. Uh, and I think uh, they could have held a few things back. Yvonne here, Terry. I think they also undermined the Liberal Party's own fiscal record and financial approach on budget making. There was no need to adopt every pretty much every promise in the NDP and Green platforms. And the, the thing they really did was, by saying the money is there now, uh, and this is all affordable, of course they've undermined their... The, that money's available to the NDP as well. So if the Liberals are going into opposition, how are they going to accuse the NDP of overspending? Uh, the other thing is, I think it's reckless, because we've seen over the years that just because you had a windfall, as we appear to have had at the end of the last budget year, which ended March 31st, just because you have a windfall there doesn't mean that that money is there every year going forward. British Columbia economy is still resource-based, still dependent on commodity prices and exports, and very volatile. You can have a turnaround in the billions of dollars in the space of two or three years. So I think they've also, by saying that this money is going to be there going forward year after year, really undermined the the more cautious approach to provincial finances that Gordon Campbell established and that Christy Clark carried on with. Well, we certainly saw in 2009, after the election, that the uh, the fiscal picture was much different than it was going into that election. So, uh, Vaughn, you're right. Uh, things can change uh, quickly. Rob, what are your thoughts? Well, you know, it's, it's actually easier probably to put a list together of the things that uh, they don't agree on that weren't actually in the throne speech, because if you add up the reversals in policy or new policies or things that we'd never even heard the Liberals say before, it's like 24, 25, as many as 30 new items that, uh, that have appeared there. But the list uh, that the Liberals didn't move on is much smaller. Kinder Morgan, that pipeline is still something the party supports. Site C, clearly that is a hill that the Liberals uh, plan to die on and are currently in the process of dying on. Uh, raising the minimum wage, that was not in there. Tax increases. I, I think it's when the Liberals talk about maintaining the core of the party, they're really saying they don't plan on raising taxes on the wealthy and they don't plan on raising taxes on corporations, which is how the NDP said they were going to pay for all of this. And the artful way they get around it, as Vaughn was saying, is suddenly we have a uh, miraculous structural surplus that has appeared out of nowhere. Uh, it wasn't in the February budget, certainly wasn't any of the briefings that we all attend with Finance Minister Mike DeYoung, where he warns us that prudence and caution are the, the words of the day. Um, so those are basically the issues that differentiate the parties now. And on everything else, there's a rush to, to almost furious agreement uh, on, on issues that we never thought we'd hear the parties agreeing on before. And a lot of, you know, that I think the speech really was aimed at the suburban and urban voters in Metro Vancouver, where the selection was won or lost. 
cost. <clears throat> As Rob says, you know, maintaining a position on Site C in Kinder Morgan is going to solidify their hold on the, the, the on the Great Divide, the vote north of Metro. But they need to find a way back into the hearts and minds of people who live in Surrey, uh, in the Tri-Cities, and Burnaby. And that's why you had, you know, so much emphasis on child care, on education, on, on getting rid of tolls. Uh, which it was uh, an idea that was completely dismissed as irresponsible by Mike DeYoung in the election campaign, uh, but now is uh, part of part and parcel of the BC Liberal platform to match the NDP. And how comfortable will uh, BC Liberal candidates be in the uh, election? Uh, presumably, will be coming relatively soon. Going out there and uh, now saying it's okay that people in the interior are paying for the Portman Bridge, when uh, in the last election, the, you know that was pointed out as something that uh, we didn't. Uh, we didn't find uh, very uh, comforting for people in the interior. So uh, it w- well, has the, the pendulum swung too far the other way? As a, Terry, as a member for Kamloops, a former member for Kamloops, you will note the particularly galling comment in the throne speech on tolls, which is that the throne speech says, well, no one else in British Columbia has to pay for their highways through tolls, so why should people use the Portman Bridge? Well, as everyone in Kamloops knows, there is one highway in the province that was entirely paid for with tolls, and that's the Coquihalla. How Absolutely. soon they forget. Yeah, <laughs> it's true. It does seem like the uh, the pendulum has gone from one extreme to the other. But again, uh, you know, is it is it not uh, reasonable to say, well, listen, this is this is what the people of British Columbia have told us, and really doesn't matter who the government is as long as we're doing what people have said they they want uh, what's the difference uh, can we can we believe as people of british columbia that any other leader of any other party would be any different well i think there's a couple of things also to factor in here is is, is christy clark was merciless in her denunciation of john horgan as uh, and and, they, and the liberal characterized john horgan as a master of flip-flop say anything john and I really now what Christy Clark has done, even though I think a lot of the policies in this throne speech are popular and are going to be popular with people if they're ever enacted, but to contrast that with their attacks of Horgan for doing exactly what she did yesterday is somewhat stunning. Now, you know, I think this thing's going to be forgotten after a while. We're all going to be focusing on the confidence vote. Uh, and when we get into the next election, these policies will come up again. And perhaps then the flip-flop part of this will be lost on the voters that don't really care about it. They care more about the actual meat of the policy, whether it's 60,000 child care spaces, getting rid of tolls, or, uh, you know, hiring 112 family doctors, or any, any number of the other things that are in this, in this speech. We're going to take a short break. Uh, we'll be right back with Vaughn Palmer, Rob Shaw, and Keith Baldry right after this. Radio NL. RadioNL.com. Local. First. You're listening to Inside Politics on Radio NL for Kamloops Computer Center. Once again for Shane Woodford, here's Terry Lake. Well, welcome back. We've got uh, Keith Baldry, Rob Shaw, Vaughn Palmer talking about uh, the strange and wonderful world of BC politics. Uh, this throne speech had so much in it uh, that was uh, from the Green Party, from the NDP Party. Uh, how difficult will it be for those parties to uh, to vote against this throne speech? Let's start with uh, Vaughn. Easy as pie. <laughs> I, they, they've already made it clear that they don't believe this last-minute uh, deathbed uh, conversion by Christy Clark and the Liberals. Uh, they don't trust them. 
And they think, uh, you know, Andrew Weaver has the line, uh, the liberals have earned a time out. Uh, it's not like they were crushed in the election. It's not like they uh, didn't fall just short of the mark of a majority. But uh, Weaver has united with the NDP, and uh, they're going to vote together to defeat the government probably next Thursday. I think that's the most likely date for the vote, and then Horgan would be called on to form a government. Uh, look, the the challenges ahead for Horgan in making it work with Weaver are enormous. Uh, everyone wonders if you can do it at 44 to 43, and having been in a government area, you'll know there's all kinds of challenges that come along in government you didn't even imagine. But to me, the the sensible course of action would be to uh, take your medicine, go to the opposition benches, and let the other government get on with it, not minimizing the challenges ahead of them. And uh, Keith, uh, what do you think? Uh, will the this alliance of frenemies uh, be able to, to uh, get anything through the House? No, you know, it's going to be very hard, Terry. You know how the House works, and, you know, all the machinations around the speaker and the deputy speaker and the committee of the whole and all this stuff, it's going to be very hard. They're going to have to break a number of long-held conventions. That's going to be controversial. You know, it's situations in which the speaker doesn't vote or can only vote a certain way. Uh, they're going to change some rules or defy some conventions uh, in order just to get a bare minimum of legislation through. So uh, this is going to be a government acting mostly by cabinet order, I think, not through a heck of a lot of legislation. And it's uh, and they're going to win those confidence votes, I think, uh, a couple times a year. But I really think we're going to see a paralyzed parliament more than anything. And I think out of frustration, John Horgan, depending on you know how they think they're doing in some of these key metro ridings, may very well visit uh, the lieutenant governor sometime this fall and, and seek dissolution himself when he realizes this thing really isn't working to any great effectiveness in serving British Columbians in, in terms of really implementing a, a unique agenda, because I just don't think the numbers there support a, a government that's going to fire in all cylinders in that house. And one piece of legislation that this alliance appears to be predicated upon is uh, official party status for the Green Party, which uh, uh, I believe would require a change to the Constitution uh, Act. And uh, Rob, uh, what if that doesn't get done? Uh, will this alliance fall apart? Well, I think it'll get done. I, I think that was pretty much the first thing that every party agreed to give the Greens, is uh, crack that baby open and give you pretty much whatever money you want to, to sit there as a three-person caucus. Um, but uh, there are a lot of other stresses that are going to come up in that relationship. We've already seen Andrew Weaver muse about supporting liberal legislation, such as a ban on corporate and union donations, which would probably tick off the NDP. But I think there's going to be also an internal stress test uh, on the Liberal Party, because uh, well, you know, a there is, it is the coalition party, as you know, Terry, and there are uh, members who are from the kind of center-left and members that go all the way to the, the fiscally conservative right, and some of them are probably looking at this thinking, what in the heck uh, document is this? Is this the Liberal Party that I ran for or supported or donated to? And so there'll be a bit of a reckoning within the party. I think the Liberals thank their lucky stars. There is no strong, credible, alternative right-wing party already out there right now, because the core argument from the Liberals for so long has been, uh, we're not going to spend your money. If we have a surplus, we give it back to you. We don't know how to spend your money better than you do, so we're going to put it in your wallet. And now they're not only spending all the money, they've created more magical surpluses that they're going to spend as well. So the philosophy there uh, is going to be tough to swallow for some people in the coalition, and there'll be, a, I think, a stress test in the coming weeks uh, on that within the Liberals as well. That's a very good point. And, uh, you know, I, the nascent uh, Conservative Party, and we certainly saw in Comox, uh, Courtney Comox, that uh, that was 
uh, a bit of a factor there, a deciding factor in many ways. Will we see that in other ridings that are relatively close, uh, up in the Caribou, maybe in the Kootenays? Uh, will this be fodder for uh, the resurgence of the Conservatives? Well, the historic recipe for uniting the center-right in British Columbia has been NDP governments, not uh, not times when uh, when times are good and there's big budget surpluses. So I guess what I would say is that, again, the argument that to me would have made sense for the Liberals was, oh, sure, to throw in two or three things that show you you realize you didn't really reach out to Metro Vancouver, you don't need to import the entire NDP platform to make that point, and accept that you're going to be going into the opposition benches for a time and prepare to do battle politically, because that's what BC parties do in opposition. Uh, I, I agree with what Rob says, that there will be a lot of conservative-leaning and fiscally conservative liberal supporters wondering where the hell that throne speech came from yesterday, and they're right to be asking the question. Um, the longer we have an NDP government, the easier it will be for the Liberals to keep the uh, the right united. Yeah, unless unless a, a formidable leader with credibility emerges to lead the Conservatives, I think it's going to be difficult for that party to get going. Even though there is, as Rob says, there is going to be frustration on the Conservative side of uh, the BC Liberal Free Enterprise Coalition. But when the alternative may be an NDP government, some of that frustration may dissipate. And Rob, uh, what do you think uh, the LG will do? Uh, you know, I know Judy Guichon quite well. Mm. Uh, she's very independent. She's smart. Uh, she she won't feel pressure to do what other people tell her to do. She, I think she'll do what she thinks she should do. So will she just look at this and say, uh, this, you know, we're not going to be able to govern here. Let's just go to an election. Well, you know, and the... We suddenly have an overabundance of constitutional experts, uh, most of whom are on Twitter now, telling us exactly what the LG should or shouldn't do. But she does have a bit of a choice, although I think uh, people have coalesced around the idea that uh, at this point in the cycle, it's so close to the election, that uh, would be probably incumbent on her to at least give John Horgan and Andrew Weaver a chance to, to take a shot at it. You know, a lot of the constitutional experts say, had this taken longer, the six to nine month window, after that, it's much more likely that she just call a new election and say, you know what, um, the, the voters can figure this out. But it is a choice for her. She's getting a lot of advice, and uh, we haven't had we don't that LG position. You know, we don't often. No offense to Judy Guichon, but we don't often appoint those people on on the merits of their constitutional knowledge because we don't rely on them for that quite often. So she'll be getting advice and she'll make up her mind. But I think most people expect her to give John Horgan a chance because uh, no one really wants another election right now. Well, I said on election night that uh, the big winners in all of this was uh, the media, and uh, it's yep. provided lots of fodder for you gentlemen. Welcome to the club. Yeah, it's, well, uh, uh, for a little while anyway, but I want to thank you all for uh, taking the time and sharing your thoughts with us. It'll be uh, interesting next week. Good luck in Victoria, and uh, I know you won't get a lot of sleep covering everything there next, uh, next week, and we'll see you back here in two weeks. All right. Enjoy the media. Bye-bye, Terry. Thanks, Terry. guys. So we'll uh, take a break now for uh, our news, and we'll be back after the news with uh, Hamish Telford, political scientist from the University of the Fraser Valley. Accountable to you. This is Inside Politics for Kamloops Computer Center on Radio NL. Here's Terry Lake. Welcome back to Inside Politics. Uh, Terry Lake filling in for Shane Woodford, who's uh, taking a well-deserved break. 
Talking about uh, the strange and wonderful world of BC politics, uh, we are in an unprecedented situation with what many believe is a hung parliament. Lots of questions about the role of the speaker, uh, also the role of the lieutenant governor. And so here to shed some light on all of that, uh, Professor Hamish Telford, a political scientist uh, from the University of Fraser Valley. Welcome, Hamish. Thank you, Terry. Good to have you on the show this morning, and uh, give me some of your thoughts about the, the role of the Speaker, because uh, there's uh, various opinions on uh, how the Speaker functions in terms of breaking ties, um, and uh, if the Speaker should resign if the government falls. Uh, what, what's your view in terms of uh, the Constitution Act of B.C. and, uh, and parliamentary process? Well, we solved the, serve, the first sort of um, unknown crisis yesterday by the Liberals offering up a speaker. And initially, the Liberals said that they would not uh, volunteer anyone, and it didn't look like any party was going to volunteer anyone. So for a while there, it looked like we'd have a, a face-off in the legislature, a standoff. That didn't happen. The Liberals uh, have made the argument that it's uh, incumbent upon the government, uh, generally speaking, to put forward a speaker, and, and they have done so. And, uh, and now... <clears throat> Excuse me. And now it looks like uh, the Liberals will be defeated on the vote on the throne speech next week by a margin of 44 uh, to 42. The Speaker won't uh, vote in that because it won't be a tie. The supposition is that uh, he will resign uh, thereafter, and I think the Liberals are going to be making the argument, you know, it's incumbent upon the government to put up a Speaker. We played that game. We put up a guy and lost. Now, if you NDP form a government, it's your turn to put someone up. And then we end, in, and end up in some very tricky area uh, because we would expect a tie on most votes, 43-43. And uh, that's when the Speaker's role does um, uh, to kick in. And, and the Speaker generally breaks the tie uh, by sustaining motions, sustaining debate, and sustaining governments. And, and, but it's, it's a precarious way for a government to, to live. And presumably that uh, that means that every MLA is going to be in the House. Uh, no one's sick, no one on vacation, no opportunity to miss a vote. That's right. If for, for an NDP government to work with Green support, it has to be all hands on deck at all times with, with firm party discipline and whipped votes. I don't think that's a problem for the NDP. It's a highly disciplined party. But, but the Greens have eschewed party discipline on principle. And, uh, but for an NDP government to survive, when it comes to matters of confidence, money bills, budgets, supply, uh, the Greens are going to have to be um, subject to the NDP whip for the, for the government to survive. And the Greens, the Greens may not enjoy that. It goes against their, their party's principles. And at the uh, committee stage of passing any legislation, you've got the deputy uh, speaker in the chair, the, the speaker is not there. Uh, and so how difficult will it be for uh, an NDP-Green uh, alliance to get any legislation through that committee stage? I think it's going to be extremely difficult. And uh, um, it, it could well be that they, they can maintain the confidence of the House uh, with the break, uh, uh, tie-breaking vote of the Speaker on those um, few confidence votes, but they may not be able to get anything else done. I think that's the risk that the, the NDP are, are taking uh, in this scenario, and I think it's a very risky proposition on, on their part. They've been haunted by the narrative. I'm not going to say the record of the 1990s, but the narrative that exists around the 1990s. And uh, if, if they struggle to govern in this scenario, as I think that they will do, that may confirm in the minds of many people the narrative that it's out there. And of course, the Lieutenant Governor, uh, Judy Guichon, is hearing all of these uh, arguments and uh, I'm sure getting a lot of advice. 
Um, if uh, if you were in her shoes, would you give the uh, the NDP a chance to govern, or would you say, look, you're not going to get any legislation through, or it's highly unlikely, so why don't we get to the inevitable election sooner rather than later? Yes, and we'll have to see. I think what uh, I think the Liberal play here, and you may know more about this than me, but. Uh, uh, I think the Liberal play with the throne speech yesterday was was to sort of put out uh, a new agenda, um, and and looking at the other things that the Liberals have stated separately, I think they're trying to create um, pressure for the Lieutenant Governor to, uh, to move with a dissolution rather than offering uh, the the job to to John Horgan and the NDP. And and if that happens, um, and the NDP and the Greens have voted against the throne speech yesterday, they're going to have some explaining to do in a new election campaign. However, if I was the lieutenant governor, I think that under this scenario, uh, rather than go back to the polls immediately, there does appear to be um, an alternative route, however precarious. Uh, and I think that I would um, ask Mr. Horgan to form a government with some qualifications, and that is I would want some clarity from him and his governing parties as to what they deem to be, what they consider to be matters of confidence, because we have to have clarity around that issue. There, there's, there's language in the agreement with the NDP and the Greens that suggests that budget bills um, may not be considered matters of confidence. Well, historically, by convention, budgets have always been matters of confidence. So I think there needs to be clarity around that. A government can't face defeat on a budget bill and say it wasn't a matter of confidence. So let's assume that the uh, B.C. Liberal government uh, does not survive a vote of confidence uh, when it occurs, likely next week. Uh, the uh, Let's say the lieutenant governor invites Mr. Horgan in for a chat. Uh, how quickly does she have to make a decision on whether to uh, to give him a chance to be premier or to go to an election? What, what sort of time frame are we looking at? That's a very good question. I, I think the time frame is very short, uh, a couple of hours uh, maximum. She's obviously had a long time to, to think about this um, and, and seek advice. Um, her number one job is to ensure that she has a premier and a government. Uh, she cannot go uh, very long. You know, if Christy Clark uh, comes and says, I failed to get the legislature, uh, confidence of the legislature, I'm, I'm, I can't be premier, I'm resigning, uh, she can't go very long without a premier or without a government. So she has to make her decision. I think within a few hours, if you go back to the uh, prorogation crisis of 2008. The governor general at the federal level uh, kept Stephen Harper waiting for about two hours when she mulled over whether she was going to grant his prorogation or or not. Uh, I think that's sort of the time frame that, that we're looking at here. We're talking to Dr. Hamish Telford, a political scientist at the University uh, of the Fraser Valley, about this unprecedented uh, situation we find ourselves here in BC politics. Uh, have we seen anything like this in Canada uh, in your time uh, studying politics, uh, Hamish? No, not in my time. Uh, you know, obviously we've had minority governments, um, quite a few of them. We went through a string of them in the, over the last decade at, at the federal level. Uh, but uh, I've never witnessed what I would describe as a truly hung parliament. Uh, and, and, and I've now had to sort of turn to the history books or other people's recounting of the history books to see that it's, it's happened once or twice in other provinces, once in Newfoundland before it joined Confederation. It, this is a very rare uh, sort of situation. I guess uh, it may be closest uh, in comparison to what happened in the UK with uh, Theresa May having to form an alliance with a small party that doesn't seem to reflect the values of her party. Uh, will we learn anything from their experience? 
I think we did learn some things from the experience of uh, the, the David Cameron alliance with the Liberal Democrats uh, a few years ago. I think this current uh, situation uh, in, in with Elizabeth May is, is more akin to a traditional minority government that we have some uh, experience uh, with in Canada. Um, we've had other uh, provincial sort of coalitions um, the, the, in Saskatchewan. There was an NDP Liberal coalition in Ontario um, some 30 years ago. The Liberals uh, governed with an accord with the NDP after defeating uh, the Conservatives who had been in power for 42 years. Um, but but those are the closest examples that we have in Canada to what we're witnessing here. And in those cases, in, at least in the Canadian cases, uh, the governing coalition had a clear uh, majority over the over the opposition. If you go back to the uh, case in Ontario, which I think is the one that's pointed to most often, the NDP and the Liberals had a 23-seat advantage over the Conservatives. That's not the, the luxury that the NDP will have over the Liberals in this legislature. And I, uh, I spent a lot of my time explaining to people that the B.C. Liberal Party has, uh, has been a coalition of Liberals and Conservatives. Uh, given the history uh, in this province, uh, what kind of pressure do you think there will be on that coalition of Conservatives and Liberals to hang together, given this 180-degree uh, uh, change in direction uh, that we saw in the throne speech yesterday? Yes, well, that's the risk that, that Christy Clark is is taking, uh, particularly with the the, the more conservative uh, side of of her party. I don't think that a lot of her um, conservative supporters uh, can be uh, uh, comfortable with this. I I have trouble if the Liberals survive. I have trouble envisioning Mike DeYoung uh, delivering a, a new budget with with relish with this these kind of, of spending uh, commitments. Uh, at the moment, um, those voters don't really have anywhere else to go, and they probably have more trust in Christy Clark and Mike DeYoung to manage the fiscal um, aspects of the province than, than an NDP government doing uh, the same sorts of, of policies. But I think that that's a pretty tenuous um, kind of reassurance. That uh, So uh, I, I don't think they're going to be comfortable with it. Um, but... Um, uh, I, I think it's perhaps the only play that, that Christy Clark has at the moment, and I think that people will go along with it, uh, in part because, you know, if, if there's pressure on Christy Clark to resign uh, and the Liberals go through a leadership convention, well, that gives the, the NDP at least a year in government and perhaps uh, longer. So I think that people probably want, uh, Liberals probably want Christy Clark to stick around in, in the eventuality of a quick election. And what we saw, Hamish, in the election, I think, was a clear divide between uh, urban British Columbia and uh, the the more rural and and uh, northern parts of British Columbia. What did that throne speech yesterday do uh, to that divide? Did it did it bring the sides together, or did it just create a different kind of divide? I think there was some attempt in in the in the throne speech to address that divide, and uh, you know, sort of buried underneath all of the new. Um, uh, promises that that the Liberals had lifted from the other parties in the throne speech. Uh, there was a, sort of a, a continuing commitment to to some of the major projects that I think are important to the interior and the North Site Sea uh, and the Kinder Morgan uh, pipeline. She tried uh, to sort of spin the the Site Sea and give it a new rationale that that we need uh, this enhanced electricity um, production. Uh, in order to uh, sustain um, or to, to, to mobilize 
uh, an effort to to get uh, gasoline cars, carbon fuel cars, off the roads in in the lower mainland. So I think she was still committed to those projects and and trying to spin them in a way that would appeal more to to urban voters. Um, but but the divide remains, and and this is my my real fear that if we do head into another election very quickly, we could well get uh, more or less the same result that we have now. It seems to me that there really are only maybe five, maybe ten seats at play uh, in the election, most in the suburbs around Vancouver. The interior and the north are pretty solidly liberal. The lower mainland of Vancouver Island, pretty solidly NDP with a smattering of Greens near Victoria. I don't see that changing uh, much in the, in, the, in the coming months. Hamish Telford, political scientist at the University of Fraser Valley. Have you started writing your book about all of this yet? <laughs> I think there are more chapters to to play out here, so I, I, we're not anywhere close to the end uh, of this story. Um, but it, it's been fascinating, uh, and and I've certainly learned a lot uh, about parliamentary procedure and uh, the conventions around the lieutenant governor uh, and the speaker. It's at these sorts of moments that we all have to dust off our law books and our history books and and learn about these things. So for me, it's been a tremendous learning uh, opportunity, and I'm I'm really quite impressed at how. Uh, British Columbians have engaged in in this um, in these discussions about uh, about conventions. Uh, you know, our our democracy rests uh, on the foundation of these long-standing conventions. There's been a lot of talk about not following these conventions, but if we don't, uh, we we weaken our democracy and 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 potentially imperil it. You know, everybody's saying, well, maybe the speaker doesn't have to follow this convention or that convention. But I'd point out that if Christy Clark loses the throne speech next week, it's only convention that she would resign. But if she doesn't resign after that vote, our democracy is finished. So these conventions are enormously uh, important, and I'm I'm glad people are having an important discussion about them. Well, thank you, Hamish, for your contributions, and look forward to uh, talking to you in the near future after we see what happens next week. That's Hamish Telford, political scientist uh, from the University of the Fraser Valley. We'll be right back with Inside Politics. From City Council to Capitol Hill, this is Inside Politics on Radio NL for Kamloops Computer Center. Here again for Shane Woodford is Terry Lake. Welcome back to Inside Politics. Uh, my uh, final guest of the morning is Dan Hines, Green Party candidate for uh, Kamloops North Thompson. Dan, thanks for coming in this morning. Great to see you. Yeah, thanks, Terry. Thanks for having me on the show. So uh, I'm sure you watched with great attention yesterday to the throne speech. Uh, give me your thoughts. Well, I know there's a lot of cynicism about the throne speech from yesterday. Certainly there is among the Green Party and among my colleagues uh, in watching sort of the reaction. But I um, I, I think that there's a mix of, of motivations that are going on here for sure. I can see that. I think on one hand, it's a, it was a pretty big validation of a lot of the things we put in our platform that we were, I think, being quite attentive to what was kind of going on among the, the voters in the province. And uh, that was reflected in our our, uh, our platform, and I think those pieces now that we saw them in the throne speech yesterday is uh, significant uh, affirmation that, that 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 was good. That was that was a good policy work. That was good attentiveness on behalf of the Greens and the NDP. That those pieces are now are part of the throne speech. So, yeah. Well, I see you're you're living up to um, the Green Party code of conduct, which says <laughs> that you will give praise and support good ideas and sound policies. Uh, independent of which party puts those forward. So I guess the next question yeah. is, if these are sound ideas, good policies, um, you, your leader has said you're, you're going to vote against them. So 
How do you square that circle? Yeah, a large gap between uh, the Green Party's pr- pr- perspective on so many other issues. And you know, is what, what gets named in a throne speech, like you know, is, is basically a very small bit of the iceberg. Uh, you know, most of it is actually below the water surface is when it comes to legislation. And there's this significant di- disagreements between us, fundamental disagreements between us and the BC Liberal Party. And what often gets brought out are the industrial projects that, you know, Site C or Kinder Morgan. But it's really on a deeper level. It has to do with our shared responsibility for one another. And I think there's, a, there's, a, there's that. Um, and there's also 16 years of, of actual governance. Uh, we're, you know, it's not just a one-day one throne speech. It's really the whole record of a government that's up for, um, for consideration. And as we look back at 16 years of the BC Liberals, we just feel like we can't continue to support their governance of the province. And that's why we want to basically follow through with the mandate we've been given on May 9th and work to, with this minority government and work with the NDP and see what happens. So yeah. when you say you, the mandate given to you on May 9th, do you yeah. think, and Dan, you know, people have probably talked to you a lot since the election, when, when people were voting Green, do you think they were voting to have an NDP premier in government when, when they cast their ballot? Yeah, well, they were voting for a change, and I think uh, it's a it's a valid. I think there's there's a couple criticisms of the Greens. I think that are that are quite valid. One is the the decision to go with the NDP, as opposed to going with the Liberals. Um, I think that's a valid. Uh, we can have that conversation. You know, was it a wise choice? Was it you know reflection of where the Greens could have should have would have gone? Um, that's fair enough. Uh, but when I, wh- where I get um, hung up is when I hear the criticism that the Greens somehow should have stayed completely independent. And in a Westminster system, the way we've got it set up right now, the way the rules are set up, we didn't really have a choice when it came to supply and confidence. We, we needed to have a government. We needed to have somebody who was going to sit on the government side and was going to have at least some level of support going forward to know that they could at least pass a throne speech and, pe- and pass a budget and begin to function as a government. So we didn't have the luxury of just being able to say that we would stay on the fence uh, right from the very beginning and never choose a side uh, when it came down to these two parties that got the most votes. So, so we, you know, we, we, we decided to go with the NDP. There were lots of reasons why that's the case, and, um, and that's the decision that we made going forward. But without that agreement, if you had seen that throne speech yesterday, would you be inclined to throw your support behind it? Uh, yeah, I guess there's always that question on these sort of hypotheticals of what could happen, could have happened differently uh, if we could, had delayed that decision and maybe known. But in all fairness, the negotiations were going on between the Liberals and the NDP and, and, and the Greens. Uh, there was ample time for the Liberals to have tabled what they were going to do here and sat down with the Greens and tabled it. And we know that that, that wasn't the case. So uh, there, that there was, there was a, even a bigger divide during those negotiations. So I think it's a, um, it's, it is, you know, uh, my, my, uh, my uh, seismograph of, of cynicism uh, operates at a very deep level in me. And my, all my needles went off yesterday because I thought, you know, you, you guys could have come earlier with this. Uh, you could have come years ago with this as legislation, right? So especially yes. the banning, <laughs> especially the banning corporate and union donations. Right. I mean, that's been, that's been considered in BC for a long time. And th- that could have easily been brought forward earlier. Now, yeah. you must have had a smile on your face. I know I did. And, you know, my conservative... Supporters uh, don't like it when I talk about the carbon tax, but you know it's a policy I believe deeply in. Yeah. 
you must have uh, been smiling to see that uh, e- even the BC Liberals now are talking about increasing the carbon tax. Yeah, and I think vindication is probably too strong a word, but certainly uh, encouragement is, is a good word to use. I think it's encouraging to see the fact that even uh, the Liberal Party, which is really the holdout here, uh, but when it came to the carbon tax um, in the la- in this last uh, administration, but to see it basically come back uh, a more accelerated carbon tax, even be suggested from the Liberals now, um, that's encouraging, and, and it tells me that that uh, now here's the really interesting question going forward: What is this going to mean as long as this government survives? Uh, when it comes to things like the carbon tax, will there be a truly tripartisan, unanimous decisions about these things going forward? Now, that'll be quite extraordinary if it happens. But the throne speech indicates that there's going to be that at least a banning corporate union donations, and maybe the carbon tax, and maybe the spending on early childhood education, maybe when it comes to the reform, uh, the uh, the uh, referendum on electoral reform. So, Well, Dan, uh, yeah. thank you very much for your thoughts. you sure. got to tell me quickly if there's an election uh, <laughs> relatively soon. Are you running again? Yeah, I've been really open about the fact that I'm willing to, to, to toss my hat back in the ring again for Excellent. another go. Sure. Well, thanks. It's always a pleasure uh, yeah. speaking with you. Uh, that's Dan Hines, uh, ND, or sorry, the BC uh, Green <laughs> Party candidate for Kamloops North Thompson. Uh, that's been Inside Politics. Uh, Terry Lake here for Shane Woodford. We'll, uh, we'll see you again in two weeks. The Valley's first choice for local news. CHNL 610 AM in Kamloops and streaming online at RadioNL.com.